If, like me, you attended a Catholic elementary school in, say, the late 1960s or even earlier, your memories of the Feast of Christ the King probably include lots of marching. We would line up, boys on one side, girls on the other, led by our battalion commander, Sister Mary Alma, and we would march from the schoolyard into the church singing some sort of martial hymn, proclaiming ourselves soldiers of Christ, following the cross and ready to storm the ramparts of evil. It was pretty rousing stuff. Back then, we knew what a king was because we were still pretty close to fairy tales and storybooks. But even then, because we didn't have a king, and in fact, since our country was founded in opposition to a king, we knew that this was metaphorical. And as we grew up, the metaphor became more and more of a problem. For many years, this was the sort of king that most people saw on this feast day, I suspect. Christ the King was the most triumphalistic feast of the church's year. Lots of talk of thrones and dominions and majesty and power. And you can see some of that even in today's first reading from Daniel and in Psalm 93, the Psalm of the day, and in our second reading from the book of Revelation. These bits of apocalyptic literature though need to be understood from the perspective of their original readers. If you were paying attention last week, then you know that apocalyptic literature was being written to communities that were being persecuted. And they were meant to inspire hope that the unjust earthly rulers would be supplanted by a more powerful king, our God, who would come to establish a reign of justice. As I said last week, apocalyptic writing only really works if you see yourself at that turning point of history, where evil is about to be overthrown, and when God is about to step in and bring a reign of justice and peace. Outside of that context, if you're not really at that turning point, apocalyptic literature is either nonsensical or it starts to inspire fear and paranoia. But in all of this apocalyptic stuff, the king is the one who exercises power and absolute authority. It's exercised for good and for justice, but it's still the almighty king. And given all that, doesn't this gospel today just stop you dead in your tracks? In the midst of all of this power and glory, we find ourselves transported to some alternate universe where Jesus stands before Pilate and declares, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, the de facto king in this scene, is confused and frustrated and watches his own authority evaporate in front of his eyes. Jesus is accused of a criminal act. To make yourself a king is to challenge the authority of the ruling king and invite death. And here Jesus stands, calm and self-assured. And somehow in this scene, the king and the criminal have changed places. This scene reads like many of the parables, the way at the end it overturns our expectations. 
And all three of the Gospels that the church has chosen for this feast day function this way. In year A, which we had last year, we have the judgment scene from Matthew 25, where the king separates the sheep from the goats. And the ones welcomed into heaven are the ones who recognized their king in the hungry, the thirsty, the refugees, and those in prison. In year C, which we'll get next year, it's the Gospel of Luke with the scene of Christ on the cross with a sign over his head that says, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. These Gospels shatter our image of the king who lives in the castle, exercising absolute authority over his subjects. And what it leaves us is the king who sacrifices, who lives in the poor and the rejected and the marginalized whose highest value is the truth, and who lays down his life for us. And that doesn't leave much room for triumphalism or imperialism or hierarchical authority. But there is also some cause for concern here. Today, when there are so many in our country, in our church, who live in fear, fear of change, fear of immigrants, fear of anyone from a different tribe, a different party, or a different way of thinking. We are constantly told to be afraid by our politicians, our media, by advertisers, and by the algorithms on social media. And when people are constantly afraid, they begin to look for the protection of a strong king, someone they think will protect them. And this fear pulls us away from the values of the gospel, divides us into camps, and begins to deny the existence of a common good for all people. We must somehow stop looking for politicians and rulers to rescue us and begin to identify once more with Jesus in today's gospel, standing before Pilate and proclaiming that our kingdom is not of this world. The Feast of Christ the King ought to make us a little uncomfortable, not because we're uncomfortable just with the metaphor of a king, but because we are still too comfortable with our own power, our own place in the hierarchies of our world. Part of our sinfulness is that as much as we say we dislike the idea of kingship, there's always that temptation to think, well, it might be okay if I was the king or the queen, as the case may be. But the Christ, the king of these gospels, challenges that temptation because it asks us to follow a king who we see in the poor and the rejected and the marginalized the criminal who stands before Pilate for threatening the status quo, and the king who died on the cross for us. <laughs>